Welcome to this episode of Dental IQ, a place where you're going to hear from some of the most accomplished names in dentistry. I'm your host, Fabio Alfieri, and joining me this week is Emeritus Professor Lawrence J. Walsh, one of the most remarkable and highly accomplished names in dentistry today. Professor Walsh is a leading educator in the Australian dental industry, having taught for over 36 years and served for 10 years as the head of the UQ Dental School. He's the former president of the ADA Queensland and has been appointed as an officer of the Order of Australia. Professor Walsh has published countless research papers with special interests in things such as biomimicry, laser technology, and teeth whitening. On this episode, we talk about a wide variety of different topics as Professor Walsh shares his knowledge on things such as chemistry, dentistry, and physics. Stay tuned and hopefully you learn a thing or two from one of the leading minds in dentistry today. Professor Lawrence Walsh, thank you so much for joining us on Dental IQ this week. Uh, it's a pleasure, Fabio. Uh, personally, I'm very excited for this because I'm ready to learn a lot from you and there's a lot of different topics we're going to unpack, but I want to first know a little bit about yourself. I know our listeners have definitely heard of you before, um, but I want to hear a little bit about how Laurie Walsh came to be. Um, you're in a very unique position as a dentist because you're very, very skilled and educated in chemistry and physics as well, um, which is something that you don't see a lot of. And I kind of want to unpack that a little bit to understand how that came to be. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about sort of where that interest sort of sparked uh, in your early years? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I guess um, in school, I'm the original sort of science geek student that uh, generally every class has one. And uh, I was certainly one of those. And I got exposed to chemistry very early just in my life growing up on a farm. And we used large amounts of chemicals. And by large amounts, I mean measured by the ton in you know fertilizers of different sorts and ammonias and herbicides and different things and so i was always interested in how things worked and so pulling things apart understanding what was inside them was always interesting and so when i visited uh, one of my best friends in school in 1970 he'd just been given at the time a little chemistry set and i thought oh wow this is just like the coolest thing so we sat in this shed and did all sorts of um, unspeakable, smelly experiments with that. And I was just hooked from then on. I've always had a love of uh, chemistry and chemistry sets. And that stayed with me uh, for more than 50 years now. So it's one of my uh, prevailing long-term interests, you might say, Fabio. <laughs> so, so in school, as you said, you're the science geek of the school, which is, I mean, it's a great label to own. And you, chemistry was a very early interest. What was that pivot into dentistry? It was an early dream of yours to be sort of in the sort of more scientific chemistry based fields or was dentistry something that was always on your radar? Um, dentistry sort of landed on my radar when I had um, orthodontic treatment as a child. And of course, today, you know, many children in school have orthodontics, but you know, you go back more than 50 years and it was very, very rare in a school of over a thousand pupils. I was one of only two people having orthodontics and it was nothing like it is today. And mm. I had a terrible malocclusion and I got to know my orthodontist uh, extremely well and my general dentist, both of whom were actually uh, friends of my dad from church. And just spending time with these guys, I thought, these guys are actually using materials and chemistry in their everyday life, but they're actually helping people. I thought, oh, what a cool combination that is. So to me, rather than just be sort of locked away in a lab, as fun as that is, it was that interaction with people and helping that was so practical. I thought, this is great. This is a really cool area to be in. And I guess since I was about uh, 13, I knew this was what I wanted to do. Mm. 
So you're taking that love for chemistry and you're finding a way to impact people's lives positively every single day. And for you, that's dentistry. Absolutely. Dentists are the biggest users of biomaterials of different sorts in the world. And so it's one of those like fundamental things that you've got to get your head around. And I always thought it was just such an exciting and really riveting area of interest. And I guess that's one of the things about about dentistry. You have to really love it. And I really love it. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's good. I mean, I'm definitely going to accept that answer because I mean, in this industry, you see a lot of people who have such a passion for helping people. And I've, it's so cool that you've found uh, a different way to do that by applying something like chemistry, even physics as well uh, to that every day. So that's awesome. Um, so what was your education like? So you've come from school. Where did you go to university? Yeah, so um, I grew up in air in North Queensland and then came down to UQ to do dentistry. Um, I was one of a handful of kids who weren't from Brisbane. So I was one of those you know, country kids, if you like. Um, and during that education, I was really fortunate to be able to win a couple of scholarships to do vacation research electives. So instead of going back home to work on the farm, which is what I normally did, instead I was able to spend a couple of summers actually spending time in the lab doing a couple of dedicated research projects. And that really sort of laid a foundation for spending some time in my final year, which was fifth year, of doing so a whole bunch of extra electives in research, which were based on the main university campus. And that, I guess, laid the seeds for what would eventually become my PhD, which is sort of where I went afterwards as the sort of the next step in the progression. So it was really like a type of wedge that sort of began with an interest that just grew and grew and grew as I went through my career. And what was this first PhD in? Uh, So that was in what today you would call a dendritic cell biology. It was all about the cells that do immune surveillance and where they come from and what regulates their behavior. But it led to the development of some really interesting ideas that then provide the basis of what I would then do as a postdoc scientist when I went to the US. So once again, it was one of those stepping stone things. And in those days, the identification of some of these molecules that drive inflammation and understanding how the immune system found things was really important because this was all the time that HIV was being recognized around the world. So it was really fundamental to be able to work on the cells that were basically on the front line doing the surveillance and look at what the virus did, how those cells picked up the virus. And that was actually very, very sort of timely research at the moment. And now, of course, dendritic cells are used in vaccines and all sorts of things, and they're really well known. But at the time, there was only really two people in Australia, of which I was one, who were working on them. So it was a pretty interesting area. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is all during your time at UQ. And I mean, so from your time in university to even till today, you're still heavily involved with UQ and the dental school there, right? I've been you know, linked with the school for a very long time, um, even though I've escaped and I, you know, I've taught at many other uh, universities as, you know, as a guest lecturer or a guest examiner um, all around the world. But in a way, UQ has always been my home, not just my alma mater. And even when I went to the University of uh, Pennsylvania and was on the staff there for a while, just the strings to UQ in Australia were just far too strong. And so eventually I came back and have really sort of settled there for my professional career. 
And is that what Emeritus Professor means? Can you explain a little bit about what that title is? Yeah, so an Emeritus Professor is uh, is an honor that's given to some, but not all professors of a university when they retire as it's sort of a recognition of their overall contribution. So it's a, it's a really nice sort of thing in a way. And practically, it means that you're still very much involved with research and supervision and where your school or institute is going. And it's a great way of remaining uh, connected and being, if you like, still part of the family that you've spent all your working life with. So it's really nice. It's rather than just sort of uh, going home on the day you retire and uh, never stepping foot inside anymore. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like a very well-deserved honor though, if you've, I mean, dedicated so much of your life to what is now your home at UQ Dental School. So that's awesome. Um, I want to hear a little bit about your time with the ADA as well and sort of what your involvement is like. If I'm not mistaken, you were the president of the ADAQ, correct? Uh, yes, that's right. In 2018, but that I guess is really the end of a very long uh, process. After I graduated, you know, while I was still a student, I joined the ADA and I made a decision early on that I would get involved with things in the profession and in the association. So I joined some committees and um, spent around about 20 years on the, the state council and uh, then got involved with the association nationally. And I've been involved on that scale for over 20 years as well. So running these two things in parallel and eventually um, one has to spend some time, you know, on the executive or doing a term as president. And I was very honoured to be able to uh, do that in in 2018. And, and I think it's a, a great uh, honour when people can return to serve the profession and their professional association. And the opportunities that, um, that the ADA gave me were really fantastic because it's a great way of meeting and connecting with other people who share the same goals and ambitions. So for me, it was a really great part of, uh, of the career that I had. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And kind of speaking of UQ for a second, um, I know that you are still very heavily involved with building a lot of educational curriculum, if I'm correct. Mm. Is that just for UQ or is that kind of for dental education as a whole in Australia? What, is, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, dentistry education has been a really important um, a topic and interest of mine for a long time. And I spent some time on a global group that was trying to harmonize and standardize that. And we began meeting in 2002 to try to look at ways that we could make more consistency across different sort of curricula. And so it's been really good to be able to uh, work with, um, you know, deans and heads of school from all over the world, literally to try to evolve and emerge curricula together and also to come up with models of curriculum for example involving uh, work intensive learning or placements or simulation or all the things that we do which can be done in a common way and to try to lift the overall standard of graduates and make sure they're really in touch with the latest information and techniques so it's been really useful to be involved with um, lots of other universities around the world as an examiner or as a guest presenter and just to have connections with people who think the same way and are going in the same direction as you. Yeah. When you say consistency in curricula, do you think that's something that we currently have in Australia? Is there a lot of consistency amongst it? Uh, there are diversity in the models of how the curriculum is delivered, but the actual content tends to be fairly similar and that's because there are certain 
requirements and competencies that you have to meet in order to graduate as a dentist. So there's only so many ways of getting there. But things like the experience that people get when they're on a placement or a rural experience or a rotation or an intensive, things, things like that, they're really great to enrich you beyond what just the minimum curriculum requirements are. And when I did dentistry, I was very fortunate to be able to do some research electives, for example, which turned out to be really useful for my later career. So I'm really conscious about trying to give people as much opportunity as they can get. For sure. Well, speaking of research, I know you're very involved with a lot of product development um, in a wide variety of different spaces. And I think this is something that I'm most excited to talk about because I know that you must be aware of so many different technologies that are probably going to change the next 10 years unbelievably. So I want to hear a little bit about some of the remarkable technologies that you might have seen maybe in the past five years. Mm. So um, one of the really neat things that we've got at the moment um, is called biomimicry. And this is basically trying to take nature and copy it and then improve on it. So when we're looking at problems that arise in the enamel of teeth, by using a biomimicry approach, instead of saying, let's go off the lab and build some artificial model to do something, you ask yourself, well, actually, what's the natural system that repairs this? And how can we leverage that, make it work better, make it work faster, so on? So that's a you know, a technology for remineralization. But we've been able to take the same idea and apply it to lots of different things. For example, uh, we submitted a paper recently, which was about surfaces of dental implants, where the nanostructure on the surface of those starts to copy the wings of certain insects that have a type of pattern of sharp points. And those little sharp points basically impale bacteria that try to land on the surface. It's actually copying wow. something that some insects and some plants do, but putting that into a titanium metal. So the whole idea of biomimicry is really cool because often you find that you know, there are some really clever ways that exist in nature to solve a problem. So instead of coming up with something new, you want to look at that and try to make it work better. It could be, for example, an existing element. It might be a compound from a plant and we've, done some really neat work with compounds extracted from plants because, you know, plants have to fight off bacteria and fungi and pests all the time. So obviously they've got systems to do that. And uh, I can remember when I was a very, very uh, junior student in the research lab, one of the lab's projects was an adhesive that, that could work in saliva and underwater. And of course, the thing that is an adhesive that works underwater is the stuff that sticks barnacles onto boats. So you say, well, here's a really good adhesive that clearly works underwater. Why don't yeah. we take some barnacles, pull them off, work out what this glue is and see if we can make it do something. So I love the idea. And that's of, being, sorry to interrupt, Laurie, yeah. and that's being adapted into dentistry because all obviously- that, All those basic you know, concepts, absolutely. You, you, wow. you take, you take the, the, the idea and you look at how it works and why it works and then you work out how to make it better. I mean, after all, you know, antibiotics came from looking at what was naturally produced by bacteria and fungi to kill each other. You know, we've just leveraged that. So they have a natural origin as well. So I think we need to try to take uh, lessons where we can and go back to those first principles and try to maximize those, which I think is, is, is really neat. Yeah. So we've got, we've got elements of an insect and we've adapted that into how <laughs> we can attack bacteria. And we've also got the way that barnacles stick to boats 
and yeah. creating an adhesive that works underwater and in saliva. Yeah. And Biomimicry. You, probably the, yeah, probably the, the most strange example that I can give you was um, when I was about 12, I remember reading uh, mad, mad magazines were all the rage that, you know, young boys used to look at. And, uh, you know, my friends at school used to get them and you'd always flick to the, the middle page where there was a four-panel cartoon and then you'd turn over and there was the grand reveal. It was always something you never imagined would be the grand reveal. So that was always the feature for me. And I can remember looking at one which was about, uh, it was a guy who was trying to impersonate Gene Kelly. And he was walking on the street in New York. It began to rain. So he picked his umbrella. He was swinging around a pole and he started to sing, singing in the rain. I thought, this isn't a very interesting cartoon. And I flicked the page over. And in the best of Mad Magazine tradition, it turned out that it wasn't raining but on the two adjacent buildings was a giant banner which said world long distance spitting competition. So it was <laughs> okay, actually okay. saliva that was raining out. And I went, oh, wow, that is hilarious. Now, that concept we used to develop an assay for nano droplets that turned out to be really important in developing a new technique to do um, root canal work using lasers. Because of that concept. Because of that, that one cartoon, when I was thinking about how to measure nano droplets, that cartoon came to my mind and said, we need a spitting assay. And that's exactly oh. what we did. And that's now you've been used by several laboratories other than our group to actually measure little nano and micro droplets of, of fluid. And last year, we began using it to measure the spray of little particles produced in a dental visit to look at the risk of COVID uh, infections. So, you know, we went back to the spitting assay once again. So there's lots of little clues in our life. If we're just open to them, they are the inspiration. And I hate to say that, you know, I've been inspired by Mad Magazine, but that's true. <laughs> no, I think that's fair enough to think that Mad Magazine and a spitting cartoon has potentially led to breakthroughs in science and, you know, COVID-19 research. That's incredible. That's such a connection. People also joke that many things that I saw on TV as sci-fi in the 70s and 60s are now real devices. So things like, you know, phones and smart cameras and all these devices, which no one had ever imagined could be real. They were just the tools of sci-fi. And now things that we just use every day and don't even think about. Casually, yeah, right. So if you wait long, long enough, you know, today's sci-fi becomes, you know, tomorrow's invention, really. So, yeah. Other than the spitting assay, what's, uh, what's something else that you've worked on recently? <laughs> I love the name, by the way. That's that's the best uh, to me. Yeah, um, yeah we've done, been doing some really interesting stuff on um, how you can regenerate uh, bone and soft tissue because that's really difficult in a sort of three dimensional sense. So the um, so the uh, the UQ Dental Schools um, just formed a, a major research center which focuses just on the the engineering and reconstruction of, of tissue. And we uh, we published a book earlier this year where we basically show everything from um, you know gums and bone all the way through to teeth and salivary glands, all the things that one can now regenerate using uh, stem cell technologies, nanoparticles. We published some work where we uh, loaded genes into the nanoparticles and then we use lasers to penetrate through the tissue to switch on the nanoparticles to release the gene that then change the stem cells behavior to make it actually do something. So it's a combination of some physics, some chemistry, some uh, light-based engineering, some tissue engineering, all these sort of blend sciences that things 
now use are really just such exciting things to be involved with. And, uh, and that's why, you know, Research Day is such a, a fascinating and, uh, and wonderful thing to be involved with. So the genes you were talking about before, these genes already exist and we have them, but they're just, are they dormant or they not, don't have the ability to do this regeneration and we're essentially activating it? Is that what's occurring? Well, that's right. So we can, we can put genes into a cell. That's a process called transfection to make the cell do something. I mean, I'll give you a really good example. So um, the way that we make uh, the vaccine to hepatitis B is you take part of the hepatitis B and you put that into baker's yeast which you normally use to you know, make bread, but instead you, you, you force the basis, baker's yeast to make the little hepatitis B protein, which then becomes the vaccine. So it's a bit of uh, you know, engineering this little tiny fungus to do something it really wasn't designed to do. So in the same way, we can put little bits of missing genes into cells, or we can give them signals that turn on their behavior and make them do stuff faster or better or even different. And this is really important with stem cells because they're a bit like um, a type of blank page that you can fashion into a certain direction to make them do things, you know, make this sort of bone or make this sort of blood vessel or whatever. So by giving them the right signals, you can start to alter their behavior. So it's a really interesting area of research in general, not only in dentistry, but in, in medicine, because people are now talking about engineered organs, you know, hearts, livers, all sorts of different things are now being uh, being considered. So it's really exciting. Well, for the dentistry side of things, I know that a lot of dentists share your views on this because, I mean, I was talking to Dr. Fadi Yasmin the other day and he said the same thing. He, he thinks that regenerative medicine for, you know, the soft tissue in your mouth, the enamel is the future of dentistry because, I mean, obviously the enamel in your mouth isn't very good at repairing itself. So something that's going to give it a little bit of help, that's not a synthetic and it's more of a natural remineralization, that's very valuable. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, and it's really great that, you know, Australia has been the leading country in that technology in the world for the last 25 years. The, the idea of actually taking the natural proteins that coordinate mineralization and putting them into practical products that you can put in chewing gums and pastes and all sorts of things. All that technology has come from Australia and it all came from thinking about where does this begin with milk? You know, when you're feeding you know an infant child they're getting all this nutrition from milk when people are growing up we talk about you know calcium and bones and milk and when i was a child you used to get free milk at school you know you'd turn up in the morning and there'd be literally hundreds of bottles of free milk unfortunately in north queensland in the summer it used to go off pretty quick in the heat so that was always <laughs> a problem but if we you have to get to school quick you have to get to school quick so yeah but just but just thinking about what is it about milk that's so useful and how does that work and uh, my good friend, Eric Reynolds, uh, who's a biochemist by, by background, he solved that puzzle and then was able to turn that into a, a really successful technology platform. So once again, it's learning from the way that nature works and trying to exploit that in a way that makes it even better is so, such a good strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of moving on from what you've been working on to something that I know you're very experienced with is is teeth whitening has been a big field for you for a long time. And I mean, if you know anything about teeth whitening that you, then you've definitely heard of professor Laurie Walsh. And I want to hear where that sort of specific mm. interest in the dentistry field started for you. Yeah. So um, in the specialty I work in, which is called special needs dentistry, we see a lot of patients who are medically very complex. 
and there'll often be imprints of their medical complexity on their teeth. Sometimes they're misshapen or malformed or bits are missing, and sometimes they're really badly stained or they have really unusual stains. And this can be really quite debilitating when someone has teeth that are purple or blue or green. You know, these outrageous colours make it really difficult. And I've certainly seen, you know, patients of different ages who've got a lot of adverse comment from their friends and other people when they have these unusual shaped teeth and shade teeth. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to do something for these people? And I started to think about all the different sorts of molecules that might be present and how they could be broken down. And it just developed into, again, digging around, trying to get to the basics of what was going wrong and looking for some strategies. And I guess it was really driven by the demands that I was seeing in the patients that I've been caring for, which really led to the interest. And that's often true with research in clinical areas that it begins with a clinical problem that you've got and then you explore that and then it opens other doors as you start to go along a bit of a journey. So I would see people with staining from sort of first generation tetracycline antibiotics, which is very, very difficult to treat. And I would start to think, are there other ways that we can treat this in a chemical sense that are different from what people have tried before? So that was really the beginning of the interest. And then we, of course, you know, went on to do lots of work with people who had more you know, normal types of teeth, but it sort of began with the patients who were the difficult ones, I guess. Yeah. I mean, tetracycline stains is, I mean, the definition of difficult stains, isn't it? Uh, where did you sort of land with the research around whitening tetracycline stains? Yeah. So we ended up, and, we, and we're actually still doing uh, research. We uh, only this week um, submitted for publication in a journal, a two-year study looking at what happens to tetracycline staining when it's exposed to different forms of light. And there's a really, really complex story about what light does to certain tetracycline molecules once they're inside teeth and how certain types of light do different things. So blue light does one thing and green light does the opposite, even though blue and green are not that far apart. And we sort of basically discovered by testing it in the lab and then in tooth models that blue light worsens the stain and green light can erase the stain. And that was eventually turned into treatments that use intense green lights like LEDs or even green lasers. And that's turned out to be a really useful sort of therapy, but it begins with actually a really simple concept. If you look at a tetracycline in solution, it's yellow and yellow molecules are yellow because they absorb a lot of blue light. So common sense would, would tell you that that would be a place to start. But having been trained as a photobiologist, I knew that the story was more complex. And so I used different sorts of lamps and different filters in order to remove different parts of sunlight and then exposed different sort of tetracyclines to different forms of light to actually work out what today we would call the action spectrum, which parts of light do certain things. And I'd done this research um, many years ago, 35 years ago, when I was doing photobiology in the US when we were studying sunburn, which parts of sunlight cause sunburn as opposed to which parts cause photoaging and which parts cause you know damage to DNA and so on. They're all different parts of the light. And so I just took the same strategy and we applied it to different tetracyclines and were able to work out which wavelengths are good and which ones aren't so good. And then we've uh, in the later study tracked teeth over two years to show this 
worsening and then this reversal. And this is really neat because I'd seen patients from very sunny parts of the world where their teeth, despite being stained with tetracyclines, had lightened around the edges that were exposed when they smiled. And I'd seen patients who grew up in very cold climates that weren't very sunny with tetracycline staining where it had never gone through that reversal. So the, the difference always was really striking. And the more we studied, the more it became clear that sunlight was doing something that could be quite beneficial. So in a very simplistic way, you can concentrate several years of exposure to sunlight, the right part of it, in about 10 or 15 minutes by using an intense light source. And that's really just a form of uh, phototherapy in a way, or photodynamic therapy to give it its correct chemical name. So this yeah. phototherapy or the, the green laser treatment that we were talking about before, mm -hmm. is this something yeah. that's accessible today? Uh, we've trained, uh, I guess, probably um, in excess of 150 clinicians around Australia to do it. We've trained people all over Asia, um, into Europe as well. So it's a, it is a, a widely taught uh, therapy, but it's an expensive one to begin with because the actual box that you're going to use as your laser light source you know, is going to be you know, upwards of $60,000 or $70,000. So it's a very strong sort of entry point to go past before you can then embark on the therapy. And, and that's a pretty strong disincentive when you've got to you know, find that amount just to sort of begin this journey. But, but to their credit, you know, quite a few dental practices have taken it on around Australia. Mm -hmm. Is this exclusively for tetracycline stains or teeth whitening in general? No, you can you, you can also treat you know normal teeth, and the laser will also do minor oral surgery and other things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a bit difficult to have a one-trick pony. You need to have a bit of equipment that's expensive to do several things. Exactly but for seventy thousand dollars, yeah, for just sure. To, uh, just to just to pay the uh, just to pay the thing off, the return on investment. So. Uh, that's what those practices have done. It, you know, it will it will work on uh, obviously normal teeth as well, but it's at that tetracycline level that it becomes a really good therapy. And we've published some quite nice studies looking at how big the effect is and how predictable and all those sorts of things that you you want to know. For sure. So look, more looking at the sort of everyday uh, mm -hmm. in-chair lamp that is currently being used, are we are we talking 460 to 480 nm for a typical LED lamp like that? Yeah. So most of the sort of off-the-shelf types of systems do use a actually it's a very similar LED to the ones that are used in dentistry to cure plastic or composite fillings. Um, those um, indium gallium nitride um, LEDs run about 460, 470. And if you have the right types of absorbers in your bleaching product, then the bleaching gel might get a bit warm. If you have a photocatalyst, you might be able to uh, trigger the, the bleaching gel to break down. I helped a company develop a gel based on that, that concept. However, um, there are certainly products on the market where the, the light is there really more as a gimmick. It doesn't actually interact chemically with the things that are there. There's no particular colored molecules that absorb it and get warm or get activated. So it's a really important question to know that you've got the chemistry matched to the light. Because if you don't get that connection made right, it's a bit like two people speaking a different language. They never really have a conversation. So that's a 
And as a photobiologist, it's really important to join those two dots as closely as you can together to make sure they do actually line up. Right. You mentioned photocatalyst and also the, the heat production. Are there any other effects that a light source can have on a whitening formula? Yeah, there's basically four overall mechanisms. So the easiest one is photothermal. So for example, you know, you're wearing a black shirt today. If you go and stand outside in the sun, you'll, be, you'll get hotter than if you're wearing a white shirt because black is a universal absorber of visible light wavelength. So that's simply using it to warm the gel up, which accelerates the chemistry. The second approach is photochemical. So here, the light helps to drive a chemical reaction. So uh, human vision is an example of that uh, photosynthesis. They're examples of reactions that occur when light is present. So the light is a, a necessary requirement for a photochemical reaction. And there are a couple of products on the market that do use photochemical reactions borrowed from wastewater treatment. So you, you take what you do industrially to manage effluent and waste that's coloured, that contains lots of uh, polyphenols and brown compounds, and you break that down. Well, you simply adapt that chemistry across into dentistry, and you've got a photochemical type of system, like the photophenton uh, chemistry is one good example. The third type is photocatalytic. So if you have, for example, uh, uh, nitrogen doped titanium dioxide, uh, or a rutile or other titanium dioxide mineral that's appropriately treated, those can be ways of generating um, oxygen radicals when they're exposed to short wavelength light. And that principle has been used in a number of different products in, in industry. And if you apply that, then you might have a light absorbing but photocatalytic uh, product. And finally, you can have photodynamic. And as the name would suggest, uh, from the uh, Greek word dynamos to means to push or energize, here the light actually pushes the reaction along. So it activates a photosensitizer that pulls in environmental oxygen and converts that into oxygen radicals. So that's been used in cancer therapy. So bleaching systems are really a derivative chemistry of photodynamic therapy for cancer, which is where the story originally began. So they're the four mechanisms that light uses to activate a bleaching gel. And different products will use different ones. And some products will use none of those because they lack the right piece of chemistry in the gel to do that piece of lifting. Right. So that doesn't have the connection like the language example exactly. we gave before. Exactly. I understand. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned oxygen radicals, and I really want to come back to that in a second. Mm -hmm. I have another question for you in terms of light is the wavelength of the light. When, the, when we change the wavelength, how is it different, differing the effect that it actually has on the whitening formula? Yeah, that's a good question, Fabio. So when you're going to the longer wavelengths of light, so we're now talking about going from yellow to orange to red and going outside the visible spectrum, which happens at about 400 nanometers of wavelength, we have less photon energy. That means the amount of energy that's carried in each little packet of light is fundamentally a lot less. When you go to a shorter wavelength, like for example, through a green to a blue to a violet, and then you drop into the ultraviolet when you go shorter than 400, you are going to increasing photon energy. And that's the reason why short wavelengths of light can cause photo degradation. So a good example is if you have uh, plastic line curtains on a Western window in your house in Australia, 
those curtains become brittle and your blinds become brittle when they get exposed to the afternoon sun. And it's the UV component of that, the high energy part, which is doing it, not the visible light parts. And so when wavelength gets shorter, and this is a, a relationship known through Planck's law, the energy increases quite dramatically. So you can do more photochemical work, more photocatalytic work, more photodynamic work, as you go to the shorter wavelengths, they're much more energetic. Right. So if we're talking this violet to blue wavelength range, mm, what's, yeah. uh, in your personal opinion, from your experience, what is the most effective that you've seen in terms of wavelength? Yeah. So when you go to the wavelength extreme, so when you get close to the transition into ultraviolet A or long, wing, long wavelength UV, as it's also called, you're getting the most energetic parts of the visible spectrum. So that's that's sort of a nice place to be if you're trying to drive a reaction. And that's why when some companies started to use lamps and different light sources in bleaching, they started to look at using some of these shorter wavelength lights in order to try to get this type of, of activation working. But unfortunately, they chose lights that were multi-spectral. So they had emissions that were in the uh, UVB range and the UVC. And of course, these are problematic because they cause DNA damage. They cause sunburn. They're actually quite uh, problematic for many other reasons as well. So it's a question about finding the right light source. So that's why many manufacturers have now gone to LEDs because the, the breadth or the spectral distribution is much narrower. And that means that you can have a much more precise effect. You're not getting heating that you don't want and you're only getting activation that you need. So the effective energy is a whole lot greater and your loss is a lot less. They're also much more energy efficient and convenient to use. So many reasons for using an LED if you can. So out of curiosity, as we get sort of toward this more ultraviolet wavelength, mm. Are there any effects, uh, adverse effects, if that on, you know, the soft tissue in your mouth or the actual biology of your teeth or anything like that? Are there any concerns involved with it? Yeah, so the issue arises much more when you get into the shorter parts of the UV spectrum. So, for example, around uh, 365 or around 265 or around 222, there are a couple of really strong absorbing peaks for protein and DNA in that region. And there you can actually damage DNA. And this is why some hospitals, for example, use intense banks of UV lights in order to create zones that have sterility. They use these to treat different sorts of medical products and things like that. And there's been a lot of interest in that, of course, during the COVID uh, pandemic. So these sorts of lights, um, they also break down the air and create some ozone. And the ozone has its own disinfecting action as well. So all these effects you get with extremely short wavelengths and no one would think of putting those into somebody's mouth. So there's also a practical limit which comes down to the optics of switching from using uh, plastic or acrylic uh, optics through to glass optics through to quartz optics. And that also helps to give you a sort of a decision point. But there is if you're using a low intensity light, you aren't going to absorb enough into the normal 
components of tissue, like, for example, the hemoglobin in blood to cause any adverse effects. So low intensity wavelengths around the 400 range are fine in, when they're delivered in the mouth. You wouldn't shine it into your eye for pretty obvious reasons, but inside the mouth, where you have very, very little pigment, you actually don't have strong absorption. You tend to get actually more reflection of things like the surface of a tooth, which, which mm -hmm. can often work to your advantage. Okay, so let's say in this shorter wavelength range, let's say it's between the 400 to 415 mark. Let's say we isolate the perfect number that's absolutely most effective and we put it in a device that can be used at home. And now I know you probably know this is a big taboo around at home teeth whining and the LED device specifically. Let's say we have an LED device with this ideal wavelength range. What's the effect that this is having on the formula compared to obviously a much larger, more expensive version that you'd find with your dental professional? Yeah, so the, the dental professional version, you know, the, the power is probably measured optically, you know, in the area of about a watt or so. And the application time will be less. So more joules of energy can be delivered in a, in a very small area to give some sort of nuanced control. Uh, typically, a consumer product will have a bank of LEDs with a diffuser. And the idea is trying to give a broad, even exposure of the teeth across a large segment of the teeth that you can actually see. So your end goal is actually different. It's a bit like comparing apples and oranges. The professional version you know, that you have in a dental practice is a light designed to deliver a lot of photons in a small space for a very specific therapeutic effect. Whereas what you're trying to do in a home bleaching gel is to distribute light very evenly to get a very, very consistent effect across a big area at a low, power density, which means you're not causing any absorption that's going to cause any localized heating. If you, if you took a dental light that we use to cure fillings, and if you put that on your finger or directly on your gums, within about three or four seconds, you'll be in extreme pain because of the heat of that light being converted as it absorbs into the hemoglobin in your blood. So it's not practical in many ways to directly use intense lights in the mouth unless you cover the, the gums. With, and that's what gingival barrier and you know, dental dam and all those things have all been developed to do is to actually block the therapeutic lights that we use. Whereas for something that's used at home, you need something that is safe when it's irradiating the soft tissue. So it has to use a lower power density. And that's, that's perfectly fine for the application because it's often a, a longer application anyway. It's not measured in seconds. You know, it's measured in periods of many minutes. You know, in dentistry, we have devices that will cure, you know, a plastic filling in a second or two seconds. But I'm not suggesting that anyone would put a device in their mouth and use it like a giant flash lamp for a second. <laughs> yeah, it would right. be just far too hard to control. So back to your apples and oranges uh, example that you gave. So the LED device that you're using at home versus the, L the LED lamp that you're using at the dentist, they're achieving different things, right? They're being used for, for different purposes. When you put a lot, of, a lot of photons in something, then the interactions of those photons with the something are very important. Things like scatter, things like photon recall, uh, things like uh, refraction become really important. When you're using the light at very low power and delivered for a long time, the consequences of those events, events I just mentioned become a lot less important to be concerned about. 
and the issue of localized heating also dissipates. So while, they, while the light intensity might be the same, the rate at which it's being delivered is quite different. It's a bit like saying, you know, you can get in a, you can get in a car and go from A to B. You can get in a Lamborghini and go from A to B extremely quickly. And you have a hell of a time stopping when you reach B if you're in a Lamborghini. <laughs> so, you know, you have to think about all the consequences of going very hard and very fast versus going very slow and very low. Even though the actual thing might still be a car, hard and fast and hot and strong is very different from cold and slow in terms of what the effects are going to be. So at a lower power density, these at-home devices... Would you know roughly what type of impact in terms of percentage it'd be having on the uh, the results seen from the treatment? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not, uh, you know, some of the current at-home ones I haven't tested, but, you know, having tested a lot of the in-office products that that use light, the normal gain is normally in the order of about 24 to 26%. If it's a photochemical type of uh, process, it's normally in the air, order of about a third if you're looking at a photothermal process if it's photodynamic then you're looking at you know an improvement of several hundred percent it's a massive difference so it depends on the nature of the the chemistry that's being used in the gel itself in order to push it along and again by tuning that properly using the right absorbing molecules then you can design the effect to get what you want really right right well, let's jump back quickly to the oxygen radicals that you were talking about before, because yep. I know this is a, a very big topic in the teeth whitening space as well. And it's something that we see a lot of where people are, they're happy to experience sensitivity or they're happy to roll the dice on sensitivity in order to achieve that cosmetic gain. And I want to know a little bit from you about the sort of oral health aspect to teeth whitening. Um, radicals specifically, so radicals are obviously very good at reacting with the stains that are, are in your teeth. What are they actually doing to the structure of your tooth? Yeah, so there will be, and we see this more with, uh, with, the, with in-office bleaching because we're using much, much stronger you know, concentrations up in the 30 40% range. What you see with those products when they're left for very long periods of time, if someone has you know, more treatments or more cycles of treatment in a visit than they should, is you can actually get some degradation of the enamel matrix proteins so when the enamel of the tooth is formed it's formed from a type of shell or prototype structure and these uh, these proteins are resorbed but at the end you end up with a few percentage points of the overall weight and volume of the enamel is these proteins and they serve important structural roles they allow the enamel to bend a bit and slide around a little bit so they're actually quite quite useful when you use a very high concentration of peroxide, say at 35, 40% in, in someone for 35, 40, 50 minutes, you will notice that some of those proteins in the surface and around the surface disappear. It's one reason that we, we tell people, you know, don't go out and have a short black coffee, something that's heavily stained because those little voids where those proteins used to be will now be occupied by the stain of your drink. So please don't do that. Um, but the... There is literature which has used unrealistically long exposure times that does show that um, breakdown in protein can happen. In fact, there was a, a recent study uh, published on that only in the last couple of weeks. 
there's also an effect on the enamel mineral, which is, you know, 97% of the weight and 92% of the volume of the enamel is, is a sort of appetite mineral. And this all comes down to the amount of available calcium as the rate limiting ingredient. So some bleaching products don't have their chemistry well designed and they will actually soften the enamel. They might have a very acidic pH, which will cause the enamel surface to just dissolve away. Whereas other products have put in things that regulate the calcium concentration and they provide available calcium ions. And this stops the tooth surface from softening. So if I go back and look at products that you know, we were testing for companies you know, 30 years ago, then some of those you could actually see some signs of etching and microscopic damage on the teeth afterwards when we looked at them under the electron microscope using replica technology. You know, a lot more effort has gone into bleaching in the, particularly in the last 10 or 15 years to recognize that you don't want to end up with enamel softening and therefore you need to put in various forms of available calcium and minerals and appetite. And there's lots of different ways of doing it, but you need to do something to actually address what's a pretty you know, preventable scenario when you've got something which is very chemically reactive on the surface. And you know, a lot of companies have put a lot of time and effort into trying to, to solve that little problem. And there are fortunately lots of different solutions that will work for it, which is, which is a good thing. So they're really the, the two things for, for teeth, the, the enamel matrix proteins and the actual mineral itself are the two things that you'd be most interested in. And as far as preventable goes, I suppose, so visiting a dental professional and having your whitening done, you mitigate a lot of those potential risks. Um, mm. But I, I suppose the concern comes with being able to order any percentage of peroxide online and have it shipped to your house from overseas, not having a good grasp on what you know percentage in peroxide even means, and then directly applying this 35% peroxide to your, you know, the soft tissue in your mouth, your teeth, when whitening might not be right for you. And then something that I wanted to ask you about as well is the pH level, which you mentioned before, is mm. a big factor as well, because in order for these formulations to remain stable, they have to maintain quite a low pH, right? Yeah, so in order to, to stabilize a peroxide, typically, you know, they would be, well, when, when they're made, there are two major industrial processes that make hydrogen peroxide. But in the most common variant that's used industrially, um, one of the other ingredients is sulfuric acid. So you end up with a very, very small amount of sulfuric acid in your peroxide, which is a good thing because the low pH and the sulfate are both good at stabilizing peroxide and so when it's shipped out it might have a ph of around two to two and a half would be fairly typical and so what then happens is the manufacturer would then add something to try to elevate that ph when it's actually mixed together so that could be something in another liquid or something in a powder and that's why bleaching products that are used in a dental office come as two gels two liquids a powder dual syringe Right. Two, two bits you've got to mix, basically, and uh, one, one even comes as three, but they're all variations of the same theme. So typically there will be a pH adjuster to bring the pH up closer to neutral and in some cases push it into the alkaline range as well. So, so modulating the pH is really important and we've worked with companies all over the world to actually fix pH problems in their bleaching products, which were surprisingly common 
20, 25 years ago, most products we saw had problems with their pH. Hmm. And the reason that kept separate is because once this combination happens, the formula itself really only maintains a high pH level for, depending on the level, but only a couple of hours, right? Enough time for your application. Absolutely. I mean, the whole, the whole purpose of what you use to stabilize is doing it in one way. And then what you do to activate it is exactly the opposite. You're trying to make it very unstable and break down to give you lots of radicals. So you're really going from yin to yang. And that's why having a separate um, ingredient, liquid, gel, powder, whatever it is, which is the destroyer and the activator is the opposite chemistry from the stabilizer. And each product has come up with some different way of being able to match those different demands to try to give a good shelf life but reasonable activity and each manufacturer has tackled it in a slightly different way yeah and i suppose you get a dual benefit from these dual syringe as well because i mean you've got the safety aspect but also a higher ph level is increasing the results seen correct that's true um in terms of the pattern of radicals which you get that that certainly is an effect but the higher ph also changes the enamel effect because when you have high ph the the ph dissolution of enamel mineral what's called the isotherm shows you that you're less likely to have mineral dissolve when the ph is very high so it actually stops the enamel softening effect as well as making the the radicals have a different configuration that's more reactive because they penetrate faster so they're, they're normally the two reasons why you would want to get towards an alkaline ph the risk of going you know, extremely alkaline. So if you went up to say a pH of 12 or 13 or something like that, one of the problems that you start to run into is what you're doing to the soft tissues where the gel, if the gel is leaking or if the gel is touching. So there is there are a couple of fundamental limits you start to run into with things that are very alkaline that generally people try to avoid. So let's talk about low pH then for a second. Hmm. So the critical point of demineralization is about 5.5. So anything below this is going to cause the enamel to become soluble, right? Well, the five and a half is an interesting number because it's not a number that's set in stone. So the number came from research mostly done by a guy called Colin Dawes at uh, University of Manitoba in Canada, where Colin took healthy young people took their saliva, looked at the available calcium and phosphate and worked out where the point of dissolution would be. And the reason it's really important is that in anybody, that number, the critical pH, the thing you see on the Wrigley's you know, commercial for chewing gum, the little line that wiggles around, that can vary. So for example, if I just had a cordial and most cordials contain citrates like citric acid or sodium citrate as part of the flavor of the cordial. Since I had some lime cordial, then the, those citrates basically steal away all the calcium ions in my saliva for about the next 20 to 25 minutes. So what happens during that time is my critical pH goes up from five and a half. It could even go up to seven and a half or eight. So my enamel could now dissolve at eight. It's really important to realize that teeth can dissolve even at alkaline pH if you alter the way that the calcium ions behave. And the reverse is true. You can take something that has a pH of two, um, say, let's say some um, two and a half, let's say Coca-Cola, for example, and you could have a tooth in that and the tooth wouldn't soften 
if you had elevated the amount of calcium in the Coca-Cola by adding it in, because it's all about a balance or an, or an equilibrium. And we came to understand this when we started to look at the chemistry of how these milk-based remineralizing products actually worked to study what the effect of pH was. And so we now know that the, the so-called you know, critical pH varies in people depending on what they're eating and drinking, and it fluctuates around. So the five and a half is an average. But as a general rule, when things are below that, they are likely, all else being equal, to soften quite dramatically. If I have a very acidic diet, as you were saying before, is that critical point going to raise for me? So if I eat, drink a lot of Coca-Cola, eat a lot of acidic foods and whatnot, does that 5.5 maybe jump up to 6.5, 7.5, or does it go the other way? No, it will, it will go up, which means things dissolve at a much lower level of acidity. But it depends a lot on your resting salivary flow because saliva is, is tooth's greatest defense. You know, about 30 years ago, I coined the phrase that saliva was liquid enamel. And I was quite deliberate because it literally can form enamel to a certain point. So if you have good normal salivary flow, if you're not subliminally dehydrated, if you're not smoking, if you're not on a dry mouth medicine, then your saliva will repair it. So as a good example, if you, if you have a can of Coke, then you will lose about one fiftieth of a millimeter, 20 microns of enamel. However, your saliva will replace that. It will take it about two days to replace the mineral that was dissolved away by the Coca-Cola. Now, if you are having four or five cans of Coca-Cola in a day, then clearly you're going to get into a problem because now you're not giving yourself enough time to repair that particular damage. And if you wish Coca-Cola, you know, in your mouth, you know, minute after minute, hour after hour, then you will start to dissolve away the structure of your teeth. And I've seen that in many patients. So it's all about the balance of the salivary defense against the acid attack. As long as you've got natural saliva, it's fantastic at helping you rebuild that enamel. But the ingredient it most lacks is calcium. And that's the most poorly behaved ingredient because it can come out of solution and precipitate very quickly. So you need to chaperone the calcium. And this is what certain proteins in saliva like statherin do, and what the proteins called phosphoproteins in milk and cheese do. They basically chaperone the calcium to make it available when you need it and to stop it doing stupid things and misbehaving when you don't need it in a very simplistic way, yeah. So so that's the effects on teeth, but what about gums? Because a big concern is not having access to the gum shield at home um, that is going to prevent the contact between, you know, your whitening formulation, and the soft tissue in your mouth. So for you, what is the biggest concern with people ordering very high percentages of hydrogen peroxide online and using it on their teeth and gums without that protective shield? What do you see the safe percentage being for someone to use it at home unsupervised? So the, the ruling that the, the, uh, the scheduling for uniform medicines or the Poisons Act, the, the TGA, the ACCC, they basically say that when you're above 6% hydrogen peroxide or 18% carbamide peroxide, you've actually exceeded the point where the natural defences against oxygen radicals in the mouth can cope. And that's why under the Australian Workplace Law for Hazardous Chemicals, it becomes a hazardous chemical when you pass the threshold of 6%. In other words, it causes chemical burns. And 
this is what happens when it gets on your tissues. And that's why they said, we don't want products like that available in the market, whichever way you get them. When products that are stronger are used in a dental practice, of course, there's basically flowable barrier put over the teeth, which is completely fluid proof. And that covers over the gums and basically protects them. It's like a type of armor plating that's removable in a way. When you're using a product at home, don't have that. So it's really important to think about where the gel is going and how much of the gel is there. So that's why you know, professional home bleaching uses vacuum-formed custom-fitted trays, which reduces the amount and prevents the contact with the gums because the trays are trimmed so people can basically wipe it off. But the interaction with soft tissue is almost like a rate-limiting point because the literature shows and our experience shows that once you're getting gingival irritation, people stop using the product. And if you don't get the exposure time, you don't get the benefit. So to the extent that it annoys the gums, people don't use the product and therefore they don't get the effect that they're looking for in the first place. So there's a really important balance that's got to be struck exactly right here. Can you tell me, Laurie, why does the EU only allow 0.1% but Australia allows 60, uh, sorry, six, 60 times six. more? <laughs> yeah, sorry, 60 times more, six, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting uh, discussion that's gone on about uh, how the EU arrived at their decision. And it would seem to me from my reading of their documents that they sort of were trying to go for an almost sort of zero risk approach based on the understanding that some oral bacteria make some peroxide. There are small amounts that are generated naturally by bacteria in the mouth. And clearly we have defense systems that can deal with those. It's completely harmless. And therefore, if you stay around that range, clearly you won't get into trouble ever. On the other hand, it was well known that if you went to high concentrations, once you pass 6%, 6 then you would certainly have something that was a chemical irritant. And they were clearly trying to avoid that. But many people argued very strongly that the position that the EU took was a bit nonsensical because it was a bit like you know, trying to water everything down to what was in the natural environment, which meant it clearly wasn't going to do any benefit. So it was a really just a way of them just trying to you know, extinguish the question and make it go away. But it didn't actually give a realistic pathway going forward, which was, which was a problem, I think, for people in the areas that were regulated by the EU. And there was a lot of chitty chatter, particularly from the UK, about how this wasn't sort of a helpful type of decision in the long run. And I suspect it will probably be reviewed in the future. At least I would expect so. Right, right. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, Laurie, this is just about all the time that we've got, but I really want to make a little bit of time to ask you a few questions. We do a segment at the end of every episode called Quickfire Questions. Mm. Um, I've got four questions here for you. I'd love to answer straight off the top of your head. Um, let's jump straight in. So first question is, did you have a role model in the early days of your career? Um, I did. It was uh, my PhD supervisor, Emeritus Professor Greg Seymour. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about him. Why was he a oh, role model? So, uh, yeah, so Greg is a, is a wonderful guy. and was, in a way, I often describe him as like my second father. He was just a great role model for um, how to do science well, how to work with people. Um, he taught me a lot about um, how to mentor people well, how to write grants and papers, and I owe a, owe a lot of my success to Greg's uh, many, many interventions. And uh, he's been a great 
friend and colleague for most of my life. So yeah, very, very much like, like my second father. Did he fuel a passion for you in any specific fields of study or anything? Um, Greg was a little bit eclectic and I guess he sort of encouraged people to ask what were the more difficult questions of the base of something. So get to the root of the problem. And I think he really drove that in all of his PAC students and it really tuned in with my sort of natural curiosity. So uh, I think he just really um, helped to flourish what was already there in an, in an earlier form uh, as I was growing up. He just allowed me to be able to think through and perhaps do it even better. And he also played uh, an important role in my life. Even when I was in the US, you know, he came over and visited me when I was working in the US. And I was enormously grateful and impressed that he would take the time and effort to do that, you know, just to see how I was going and getting on and everything. So, yeah. Yeah. Especially in a field like this, where it's so important to be passionate about what you do. I suppose it's, it's always yeah. incredible to have a role model like that, fueling that for you. Yeah, that's great. All right. Question number two. And I know the answer, there's probably an infinite amount of answers for this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do you think the biggest change in dentistry is going to be in the next 10 years? I think, you know, we've got very much into digital things, digital imaging, digital production, um, smart decision tools. Eventually that will turn into robotics, um, AI, autopilots. The whole sort of interface between the person and the technology is going to become the thing that I would foresee. And I'm currently involved in, you know, 10 different projects in the technology space, which touch on all the things that I've just mentioned. So I think it's clear that, working in a digital world, we have to be able to use these technologies to make the outcomes of treatment better and faster, to make it safer for people in dentistry to provide that care and to just make the outcomes a lot better. And I think there's lots of ways that that can be done and we, we can develop new technologies, we can adapt things that are already in industry and used in medicine. There's lots of potential applications and I think it's gonna be a hot space for the foreseeable future, I would say. Be very difficult to imagine things going back, you know, before we got into the digital age, I would say. Definitely. And I suppose we're already doing such a great job of it with things like digital smile design and being able to, you know, very closely execute on what, you know, a, a system can produce for, you know, a patient to see before they've even had a treatment. So yeah, definitely. All right, next question. Uh, name one person in your industry whose work you currently admire. Oh, um, one of the people who I think has done uh, a great job, uh, I mentioned before, my friend um, Eric Reynolds. So um, Eric was really great at coming into dentistry as a person who was a basic scientist and seeing clinical problems from a different perspective. And, you know, we both share a love of things to do with chemistry, but we also can look at things from a chemical perspective. And I think it's always useful to have several ways of looking at the one problem. The default is to think about the problem from the point of view of the clinician, but what about the scientist? What about the regulator? What about the lawyer? What about all the other ways of looking at a particular problem? And you know, Eric's very good at thinking of problems from lots of different angles. And he and I have had numerous conversations, uh, very spirited, uh, and he's really sort of encouraged me, you know, to think broadly and to always realize that there's multiple angles to something. 
and uh, I'm been grateful for his his input and his friendship for many years that we've done done things together. Yeah. I suppose that's very similar to the way that, you know, you, you're applying lasers to teeth whitening, for example. And, you know, the way you apply chemistry to helping people every day, it's, it's very similar. You know, looking at it from a different angle, apply different knowledge to yeah. achieve a greater outcome is, I mean, that's how we move forward in what we do, isn't it? Yeah. All right. And I've got one last question for you, Laurie, and then we'll let you go. For mm-hmm. all of the young people finishing their degrees and coming into this industry, what's your most important piece of advice for them? I would say if you're most interested in providing better care for for people in dentistry, be that as a dentist or as an oral health therapist or a dental hygienist or a dental prosthetist, if you make the care of patients your first concern, everything else is secondary and will look after itself. Because if, if, if that's your focus, then you'll be successful. You'll be highly influential with your patients and your peers because you've moved your frame of reference away from yourself and you put it on somebody else. The more you focus on yourself, then probably the least successful you will be and maybe the more strife you get into. Whereas if you've got your focus on being unselfish and thinking about what can I do best for this patient, you'll always follow where your heart is leading and you'll always end up in the right place and you'll stay out of trouble. Not only be successful as a clinician, but you'll also have a a smoother journey as you go through your career. And a fulfilling one at that as well. Well, unbelievably well said, Professor Walsh. Thank you very much for joining us on Dental IQ. Um, No doubt we're going to have you back on the uh, the podcast very soon. This is probably the most I have personally ever learned in an hour. So thank you very much for sharing. Um, Yeah, enjoy your day. We'll, We'll talk to you soon. Lovely. Been a great pleasure, Fabio. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Dental IQ. If you enjoyed the podcast, please follow us and leave a rating. And you can also find us on Instagram at dental underscore IQ. If you'd like to join us on Dental IQ or have any topics that you want us to cover, you can reach me at fabio at dentaliq.com.au. Thank you so much for joining us again. We hope to catch you next week. Dental IQ is produced by Highsmile.